Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 171 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. And I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, the founder of Ezra Group Consulting. The content of this podcast is designed to share thought-provoking industry analysis, best practices, in-depth discussions, and lively conversations all around wealth management technology. This is the last episode of the year, so it must be our best of episode. We ran the numbers to find the top 10 most downloaded podcasts from this year, and we're thankful for all of you for spending so much time listening. That includes everyone around the world, as we have people downloading from over a dozen countries, such as Canada, India, the United Kingdom, Germany, Ireland, Australia, and Hong Kong, Singapore. Our crack podcast team has pulled a clip from each episode of the top 10, and I recorded a short intro to each for you. And if you enjoy these clips, I'd recommend going back and listening to the full episodes because there's a ton of terrific content there. If you are an executive at an enterprise wealth management firm and you're having issues with one of your software platforms, then you need to call Ezra Group. Our consulting team has decades of experience with all aspects of wealth management technology, data, and operations. Whether you're looking to optimize an existing system, revamp it, integrate it, or replace it entirely, Ezra Group is the first call you should make. We help firms exactly like yours make the right decisions regarding their technology for smooth front-to-back office operations. Go to EzraGroupLLC.com for more information. I'm going to squeeze in a quick housekeeping note before we start. Be sure to subscribe to Wealth Tech Today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And the outlets where this podcast is being distributed has grown over the years and now includes not just Apple Podcasts, but also Amazon Music, Audible.com, and Spotify. And now, let's kick this thing off. Our next clip comes from episode 139, The Connective Tissue Between Processes and Technology with Matt Rayner, co-founder and CEO of Benjamin, which was published in April. Benjamin is a workflow automation engine that looks to connect wealth management technologies together to eliminate manual tasks. It's a great goal. We all hate manual tasks. And their goal is to free up more time for financial advisors and their teams to to be more productive. Now here, Matt is talking about building out their product and industry trends. Now, that's a little bit more than what you were saying before when you mentioned your a system that does a meeting scheduling, meeting prep, onboarding. Now, now you're getting into more um, analytics when you talk about leveraging the reporting engine to be notified about accounts that haven't had a meeting in a while with cash balances over a certain amount. That's a whole different type of value. Yeah, and really where that, that's just kind of a natural progression of where our software is, right? I mean, this, we're, we've been building the software on the, on the, you know, guidance of our clients of learning what they're doing. You know, we come from one RA, but we do things one way and, and other RAs do things slightly different. And we've continued to evolve the platform and it's just a natural progression, right? We've get the, we get the foundation of being able to execute on tasks and everything that we execute on. Uh, which we can dive into is all based on how a human works, right? We made it very intuitive. And so once we got that working and we were able to execute on those simple things, like a task is due in the CRM, go do X, uh, you know, inside of, of somewhere else, or a meeting is coming up in the calendar, go do X and Y in the CRM and via text message. That's the foundation of kind of the connective tissue or, or, or what the category is called a business support system. That's the, the foundation. The next layer up is saying, okay, well, now we have all this data, right? So can we do some analysis on this data to then go and take action on that information? So step two is, 
well, let's start doing reporting and delivering it to the advisor based on these different data points uh, and the different reporting. And then the next step is, is taking action on that data. So all of the contacts that come in that have more than $15,000 in cash uh, and haven't been met with in six months, maybe one advisor wants Benjamin to go start the schedule meeting workflow for them. And he'll go and start and schedule the meeting proactively. Maybe he wants to get approval on meetings from them or create a task inside the CRM to schedule and the advisor can go in and, um, and determine whether he really or she really wants those meetings scheduled. Uh, or it can go and create a task for the trader for all of those contacts, for all of those accounts to get some money put to work uh, in those accounts. And so that is now starting to create this really augmented arm that, yes, you can do that today, uh, but it takes time. I always, re I always relate where we are in automation in this industry to the, the concept of bill pay uh, in the past, right? So if you think about online bill pay, if you think about before online bill pay, how we wrote checks and paid bills was we would get the bill in the mail, we'd, we'd open our checkbook, write the check, address an envelope, stamp it, and walk it to our mailbox. The big innovation in bill pay before online bill pay was they put the pre-addressed envelope in the bill for you. So they eliminated one step. You'd write the check, you'd put it in the pre-addressed envelope, you stamp it, you take it to your mailbox. That, that didn't take that much time. That was one or two minutes of time. Um, but then online bill pay came. And when online bill pay came, there was a lot of questions. How are they going to know how much to send? How do they know who to send it to, et cetera? Um, and you know, how's the service provider going to know it's from me? And there's three groups of people. The one group that was all in, the early adopters, as we call it in the technology world. Then you had the other group that was fearful, not fearful because they would never use it, just fearful because it's like, this is so new. And then you had this other group that was pushing back and saying, that task only takes me one or two minutes. I can already do it. Why would I ever want to use online bill pay? And as we now know, the majority of, of, of Americans use online bill pay to some extent. Um, and those one to two minutes that it was taking them is filled with something else, more productive, more enjoyable, whatever it may be. Um, but when I use that example, I use that because I think that automation in our industry is at the early stages of online bill pay, where instead of, you know, people are worrisome about how are you doing that? Or I can do that already in my system. Why do I need someone else to do it? Well, the reason is, is because our value add as individuals or humans in a wealth management firm is to build and deepen relationships and talking to people. And if we're not doing that, and we're doing other things that are keeping us from that, we only have a limited amount of time. We need more time to do what we're great at. And what we are great at in this industry is building relationships. And that's something that I don't believe technology will ever be able to do. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, basically build bill pay, but instead of connecting service providers and banks is we're connecting um, processes and technologies. And instead of paying bills, we're executing on tasks. Um, and that's what we're focused on right now. The technology is trying to take over relationships. All the algorithms and social media trying to tell us who to talk to, who we like, who we don't like. So, so it's slowly getting there. I, I, I think that technology will continue to push the envelope there. And it's telling us who to talk to. It, but I, I, I don't know. Um, and, 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 I, and maybe in 10 years, 15 years, I'm a big proponent of technology. I'm a big proponent of virtual reality and how I think it can influence our industry uh, in a much very positive and meaningful way. Uh, and so I'm not, you know, one of those old school people. I am very kind of on, on, you know, cutting edge on that side. 
But the one thing that I still haven't seen, and we could come back 10, 15 years and it could say I was wrong and, and that's fine, um, is I just don't believe that technology can get the EQ, EQ level that is needed to walk someone off the edge when they're about to sell their entire portfolio because of everything that's going on in the Middle East or geopolitically, or that the pandemic hits and they, they, don't, they think everything's going to blow up. There is a, a personal relationship bond that is created, that is just the human brain having that human-to-human relationship that can't be taken over by technology. Technology will allow us to do that better, in my mind, be able to tell us who we need to talk to, who of our clients are sending emails with negative sentiment that we should probably call instead of email back. Uh, some people that we should look to, to go in and finding as our prospects because they meet the criteria of all of our other clients. I think that a lot of that technology makes sense, but having that conversation with a client and helping them understand why they shouldn't buy the house today and maybe wait a year um, and building that bond, I think that that's just going to be better, more well-received uh, even uh, to millennials uh, by human. Let's talk about industry trends. What are some of the trends you're seeing around the challenges that firms are running into and how they're um, struggling and overcoming these challenges? Yeah, I think that you know, I, I think that there's a trend happening in the space right now with this. Um, it, it's with this generational shift, not of of wealth, but just generation generational shift of ownership and leadership in wealth management firms. You know, RIAs have been around for a while. You know, one of our RIAs has been around for 25 years. Um, but, you know, a few years ago, we went from Gen 1 to Gen 2. And how Gen 1 built the firm is very different than how Gen 2 does. And Gen 1 came in as an entrepreneur sales individual to help grow the firm because they were going from zero, nothing to try to make something. And they made something. Uh, and along the way, they wore a ton of different hats. Um, and they were, they were basically the advisor, the operations, the compliance, the, the front desk person, everybody. And that's just the way it was. And that, nothing was documented. Nothing was kind of put into place. And that is different. And they were kind of the rainmaker. But now they brought up this whole Gen 2 that was basically just servicing everything that they were bringing in. And that's a challenge because now what's happening is you're going from Gen 1, who is the rainmaker, who had the entrepreneurial mindset of growing the firm that way, to Gen 2, which was the servicer. But now the servicer has to become a rainmaker. And you have to figure out how to continue to instill the, the, the same client experience and the same processes. And these firms are, are, are struggling uh, with creating processes and uh, documenting them so that they can create, you know, I always think back to the book, The E-Myth Revisited, right? The franchise model, the basically the ability to plug and play people in that do it the same way every time so that client experience is consistent. And we are on the, uh, you know, about to see a huge shift in generational wealth, which, yes, everybody talks about, well, now you're going to have to serve millennials. But the, the thing that they're not talking about is that there's going to be more people with wealth than there are today, right? You think about a family that you're serving today as a wealth manager that has $3 million. If they have two kids, now that goes from a relationship that's one for $3 million to two that two families that have two different needs and demands that each have a million and a half. And so, and your revenue hasn't changed, but now you need to serve more people. 
And that becomes a challenge. And so in order for us to be able to serve more families, we have to become more operationally efficient. And to get more operationally efficient, we have to have documented processes and standardizations. And we're also going to have to have automation. And so this trend is causing firms to really break. And I think that that's why there's that trend in M&A, because they can't necessarily grow. They don't have the infrastructure, the foundation, uh, and they need scale to be able to offer more services to more clients. And they need more infrastructure, which some of these M&A firms, these aggregators and some of the PE firms already have built that allow them to plug and play. And so I think that that trend is going to continue to happen um, for firms that aren't able to make that leap from Gen 1 to Gen 2 and operationalize their business. Uh, and I think that that trend, I talked to a lot of private equity people as well, and I think it's still very early um, because people are going to start to see the strain that it puts on their people and, and, and somewhat of the stagnation in their growth because they're, they're struggling to keep the consistent client experience without that infrastructure and that, um, the loss of that entrepreneur who was the rainmaker. Our next clip is taken from episode 157, Don't Go Broke, How to Keep Vendors in Line with Jason Albino, Chief Compliance Officer at Grove Point Financial, a broker-dealer headquartered in Rockville, Maryland. This episode was originally published back in September. In this clip, Jason is sharing tips about vetting software vendors, which is a task that we are experts at here in Ezra Group, so love hearing from other experts in the industry about how they vet software vendors. In many firms, the assistants use the technology much more than the advisors do. Yep. More important that it works for them than for sure. the advisors. Yep. Okay, so um, finishing up this topic of criteria for buying decisions, can you talk about doing your homework and vetting? How much of that do you do and how important is it? Yeah, uh, it's it's critically important, right? So um, again, uh, it's not... It's not a co committee approach, right? It's not death by committee, um, but we do have a part of the process is sort of getting that committee, um, getting everything out on the table. So um, that in that committee is where all of that vetting happens, right? You, you, uh, you, you um, gather information on what vendors are out there and whether or not there are two vendors out there or a hundred vendors out there, um, that may have a solution for you, you, you obviously have to start somewhere, right? So you, you get down to your few vendors and then um, you, you figure out, well, is, is what functionality do we really need? Again, what, keeping your eyes on the ball of what is our actual goal that we're trying to achieve with, with this technology. And then once you identify that and what your resources are, both human and um, financially, then you can really get into the decision-making part of it. And at that point, generally, we'll take that back with the executive team and figure out, um, depending on what area it might be, might warrant sitting on a few demos or whatever it is. But um, then we sort of bring that back to the executive team and come to final decision-making on, on what the right uh, course of action is. Excellent. <clears throat> so moving to the next topic, when, when, we are, when you're picking software, uh, there's two from you could break it down to two different categories. One is upgrading an existing platform or, or application and just replacing it. Another one is new. So you're bringing in a new application in an area you may never had before. Can you talk about the difference between those two categories? Yeah, um, I, I, I tend to be a um, buy versus build um, type of person. So we, uh, 
are frequently approached um, by uh, current vendors to um, sort of take a look at their latest release, right? Maybe they've got two releases a year, maybe they've got more, maybe they've got annual releases, but you, you really have to work into your process whether or not, I, just a, a way to, to assess whether or not um, in any given quarter or any given so on any given semi-annual basis, are you going to sort of accept or pursue an upgrade to a system? Um, and, I, I, you know, you, you can go broke if you take every new fancy bell and whistle that um, a vendor sends your way onto an existing system. So you've got to have some rationality to that, but you have to balance that with really the first thing I said in this is you don't want to wait until it's too late. Um, right. So, you, so we work our, when a new release comes out, we work that through our technology governance committee and really assess whether or not it's a even worth bringing to it. But if we do, whether or not we have um, the budget, the staff and, and the, the strategic sort of will um, to, to implement that. Um, when it comes to, to really implementing a brand new technology, that tends to be a bit more impactful. Um, right. There are training needs that come out of uh, that sort of thing because no one's familiar with the system. Uh, there may be large upfront costs where even though there may be a lot of work in an upgrade, generally they're not going to be as expensive to do as it will be to really just install a system from scratch. A, a new system is an unknown entity, right? You might decide that this is the best thing since sliced bread. And then when it comes to actual, you know, getting it in the door and getting it launched, it doesn't do all the things um, that, that you wanted. So you have to ask all the right questions with new technology, questions that a lot of times with existing technology or upgrades are generally already answered. And I think it's really riskier to implement new technology um, because, again, it's an unknown quantity and there are some surprises that can come out of it that generally you're not going to see um, with an upgrade. And yeah, we've, we've upgraded, we have a, a system um, uh, through a vendor called FIS, our, our sort of supervision um, system, and, and we do a lot of compliance work using that system as well. It's very data intensive. And, and we, we, we ask it to do some pretty big lifts and there's a lot of work that goes into it. But um, we, we just are in the middle of an enhancement right now. Technically, it's just an enhancement, but we hadn't uh, upgraded it for five or six years. And so it's a major enhancement that's a six to nine month project. So there still may be a lot of work um, with an enhancement, but it, there's, I still generally see it as a little less risk because at least you know what you're dealing with as opposed to really bringing on a, a completely new technology. Our next clip comes from episode 129, Garbage In, Garbage Out. Get your data in good order with John Makiewak, advise on, and was published back in February. In this clip, John talks about the difficulties in consolidating data from multiple systems, especially when one or more are installed locally. I was definitely surprised to hear how many uh, firms still have locally installed software. It makes it much more complicated. Also, John talks about um, some best practices around uh, data when you're moving data between different systems and some tips for migrating it. So very useful information. Take a listen. So back to best practices. We, you, so you mentioned um, checking your data is in good order, giving a, a very complex example, and uh, you know, consolidating from multiple systems. What about um, saving data locally? Is there any recommendations you have around that? Yeah, so so your your legacy systems, I mean, there's still a ton of 
a ton of firms using Portfolio Center as an example. Um, that's a local install. Uh, there's some other legacy systems out there. Everything's cloud-based now. So uh, there's really two bit best practices. Uh, one on the front end, any potential engagement, ask about what, what does your offboarding file look like? You know, we've all got multi-year contracts at this point. You know, I want to leave in three years. What do you provide me on the back end? I'd, I'd ask that question. I'd get the answer in writing. Uh, make make sure that you have everything buttoned up there, and you understand the implications. You know, you usually when you're shopping, you're shopping two or three different providers. Ask them all the same question. Uh, get the answer. See who will explain it to you in detail. Uh, because we're we all have the same challenge uh, when migrating. You know, a vendor A produces an offboarding file. The new vendor, vendor B. They have to figure out how to work with it. Vendor A is not going to help them. Uh, so standard offboarding file, it needs to be translated into the new system. Uh, you need to be able to get the full history and you need to have a smooth process. Uh, so understanding what, what that looks like on the back end is important. Um, secondly, and maybe even more important, in the instance that, that vendor B cannot work with vendor A's data or will not work with vendor A's data, most firms do have the ability to directly download their source data. Source data is going to be your custodial files. Uh, so it's like buying an insurance policy on, uh, on your performance history almost. Save your files. Every vendor is working with the same source data. So worst case, you won't work with, with this offboarding file. There's a limitation on the offboarding file, whatever it may be. We can always go back and reload the custodial files, so long as you save them. Now you have to do that yourself. You, you cannot rely on the custodians. They all have different timeframes, different policies around data retention. So I would just say set up an automated process, save the files locally. You don't need to do anything with them, but uh, in the event you need them, you have them. It's also really important that there are no gaps in that data. So the process needs to be daily, and you need to have an appropriate check in place, however frequently, to ensure that there's no disruptions. You can usually go back at least a few weeks or a few months to, uh, to grab historical data, but you could be cut off at some point. So it's just important to make sure you don't have any gaps in the data or else you have a, uh, an issue. So firms should talk to their IT staff about creating a script, some sort of simple automated process to pull the custodial files yeah, and pay them off. Potentially, the IT staff needs to be involved. Um, you know, the, depending on the custodian, it could be just a few clicks to uh, to set up the automated daily download process and, and just uh, map it to a particular folder. Doesn't have to be overly complex. And they and nowadays with even our cloud storage is so cheap, everyone with with a OneDrive and Dropbox, <clears throat> I know OneDrive gives out a terabyte free for every user. So that's yeah. more than enough space. They do. These are not uh, not huge file sets, and storage is free or cheap. Mm. And uh, just from a best practices perspective, it's it's something that uh, I recommend all the time. Excellent. And as you mentioned, you don't want to wait because each custodian has different uh, time frames that they allow you to go back. Whereas Correct. Shrap might be two years, and Fidelity might only be ninety days. So if you forget and you're past ninety days, you're not going to be able to get those files. 
Correct. Correct. So it's, it's always a good idea. I don't, I don't know that any uh, approach is right or wrong on the custodial end, but uh, the, the uh, firms should take responsibility for their own data there. Uh, hmm. Direct business is another one. DST, uh, I'd say uh, most firms have, have uh, DST in place. And uh, for, for that data, uh, they don't have any history that they say if you start it up and connect the uh, sources into DST and you, you need to start saving that. Hmm. So save your DST files as well. Any source data that you want to get into a system potentially in the future, make sure that you have the, uh, the source data. So uh, with, with uh, Advison and all our contemporaries, we're all doing the data management for our users. Uh, we certainly are saving it. We provide an offboarding file, but users should always take that into their own hands because at the end of the day, it's, it's their performance history that they've worked hard to achieve. So uh, one of the best practices you mentioned was sending your most complicated, complex client. And you said, don't take shortcuts. Can you give me an example of a shortcut you've seen someone take that caused them problems? Um, I, I would say if you automate too much uh, for onboarding or put it in the user's hand. I mean, uh, you, you, on the surface, a CRM migration uh, seems like a pretty straightforward thing. You, last name is last name. Having done uh, our migration of our, our sales and marketing database myself, uh, I, I know that there's a lot more involved there. There's customizations. So uh, leave yourself enough time uh, to, uh, to get that done. Uh, I don't think these things can be fully automated. Uh, so that, that's why our, our team on the front end of these, we, we ask, you know, get, give us something that you think is going to cause an issue. Let us look into it and address it appropriately on the front end, rather than try to pass off the project as delivered and then spend time going back and forth when you're expecting to be using the system. So the, Automation is a, uh, a double-edged sword. That's for sure. Yeah, we've seen that as well. I'd like to take a break from this episode to talk about one of our sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. The Invest in Others Foundation is a charitable foundation that helps charities which are supported by financial advisors. So if you know a financial advisor that supports a charity, either in the U.S. or abroad, you can submit his or her name to the Invest in Others Foundation, to one of their programs, and they can be awarded uh, money for their charity. The Invest in Others Foundation is running one of their programs right now called Grants for Good. The application deadline is next week, January 24th. So please submit your financial advisor, as you know, for this grant. I think they're awarding up to $100,000 in grants to a number of charities. So any person who works in the financial services ecosystem is eligible to apply on behalf of a nonprofit. Uh, applications must be uh, active, currently volunteering with the nonprofit, and you just fill out the form online and you get a chance to uh, get some money for these nonprofits. I've been uh, honored to be a judge in some of these uh, programs, and it's really tough. We have to look at 10 uh, different charities and decide, and, and their advisors who help them, and decide which ones to get the money. It's really hard. So the more money that you donate to Invest in Others, the more of these grants we can give. It makes it easier for us to pick because we'll have more money to, to spread around. So please go to the Invest in Others Foundation, investinothers.org on the web. You can learn more about them. Thanks. 
another best practice you had mentioned earlier was contract terms. Know your contract terms. Why is that important? A few things. Uh, one is uh, you, you could see an auto renewal of a contract. Uh, we, we don't do that in, in most cases. I just personally, I think a heads up is appropriate on a contract renewal. If you're going to hold someone to a contract, give them a heads up if, if they do want to make a change. Uh, not everyone shares my opinion on that. So uh, I think if, if uh, firms know my contract is up in July of 2022 and there is some, some uh, reason to shop around, even if it's just staying current with uh, the different technology offerings out there, we're all evolving quickly which is great for the industry, but I, th I think there's potential that uh, there's some really cool stuff going on that uh, just doesn't get looked at. So if you know your contract terms, you can say, you know, I, I'm every year, I'm gonna take a look six months out from my contract renewal, 12 months out from my contract renewal. That way, if I do wanna make a change, I have time to evaluate. Uh, vendor has time to do their migration process. Those could vary on how long they take. So you leave some time there. And then you have a really smooth process, comfortable, no fire drill in getting the new system implemented. So all starts with knowing the contract. Uh, what, you asked about horror stories earlier. You know, my, my contract is up in four, uh, four uh, months and I have to give a 90 day notice to my current vendor. If that need is, is urgent and, and um, not an option, you, you do end up working on compressed time frame and have a bit of a fire drill to get things implemented. So it's pretty easily avoidable if you know your contract terms. You don't want to do that. Trust me, we've seen enough conversions of firms we, of all we, different sizes. We've been, yeah, we've been through it. And, you know, you, you do what you can to accommodate, but sometimes you just can't in a you know, one month time frame get everybody's uh, data moved over. We, what we found is even with the largest broker dealers, they underestimate the complexity and the amount of time it takes for conversion. It always costs more than they think, and it always takes longer than they think, and they always cut it too close. So even if they do, well, we have six months till our contract's up, even that is, you know, like, you, know you had mentioned the, um, the size of the firm is very important. Maybe for a firm that's under a billion in, a, in AUM, six yeah. months or less could be doable. But over a billion, you're talking nine to twelve, or you know, if you're five billion or more, uh, it's even longer because of yeah. all the complexities, the different types of data you have. You might have more custodial files, you might have more advisors and more staff that need to be trained. So it's it's never going to be as easy as they think. Absolutely, the training piece is important to take into account too. You know, that's that's something that we we do well with, but ultimately you have to have the buy-in, the engagement from, from your client on that to bring the advisors in to ensure that they do get trained appropriately before the incumbent system's cut off. And the problem we see is that you'll get a contract. No one charges list price if, when, you, when you get a contract. So they may have a list price of X dollars and your, your contract says X minus 20%, X minus 50%. Well, once that contract's up, you revert to the list price. So if you don't get it done in time and you go over that, that the end of the contract, you are now in a, in a bonus period for the, for the vendor. So they're not charging you full rack rate and you're paying the other vendor, you're paying two vendors now. So that's- That, 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 that depends on the vendor. I, I don't believe in that sort of thing. So we, we don't have that uh, that You guys are nice. Well, you do play that. nice in the sandbox. Yes, you're going to get burned a time or two, 
but in, in the long run, it's, it's going to work out to your benefit. You're going to have happy clients. I, um, I don't believe in these types of negotiations where one person wins and the other loses. So that, that sort of stuff doesn't need to be there. Glad to hear that. Um, but again, with you, just a warning to any firms, large firms, large and small, don't wait till the end to uh, don't, don't time it where you're going to cut over the last day of the contract. It's, it's yeah. The, the more time you give yourself, the more relaxed the whole process is at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Give yourself some slippage. Cool. So let's talk more about, um, so we, so we did best practices. Uh, we got a couple of good, really great, some really great advice there. Let's talk about, um, so what about firms now? Wealth management firms now uh, that we've all got client data, we've all got data we have to manage. What are some things that you would ask a firm to like in during your discovery process that you would ask to understand, are they really managing their data well? Yeah, really three things. Um, you know, our, our sales team, I think we average 13, 14 years of experience. So some of this can just kind of be, you know, a, uh, based on experience, some of the things that we hear uh, in, in the evaluation phase. Uh, once we move it into our um, client onboarding team, uh, they have also been doing this for a long time. So um, they ask more direct questions, of course. So it is going to be a very straightforward have you been diligently reconciling your custodial data into your reporting system? Yes or no. Um, secondly, CRM, like I said earlier, they, they usually are going to have a good idea if they have some sort of outstanding cleanup project that maybe they've put off. Uh, and and the, the, the bigger thing when we look at these migrations that we'll ask is, uh, have you migrated systems previously? Who handled it? How did they handle it? Uh, we have a good idea on, on others' processes if it uh, kind of uh, aligns with how we see things. So we can try to get out in front of any potential issues that we, we would see upon delivery, just knowing, did you migrate? Who handled it? Did you do it yourself? Uh, did you have a consultant working on it? Um, was it? Was it staff? Are they still on board? Did the vendor do most of it? Uh, and then, you know, none of these projects are perfect is an important thing to remember. So while they can be very smooth, if you give yourself enough time and, and really know what you're getting into, uh, you know, a good question to ask is you've migrated, okay, what, what problems were surfaced? And that'll help us dig in on the front end of this. Again, uh, these, these kind of kickoff calls on these projects go a long way to making sure that the experience is a good one for a new client. Why do you ask that question? Have you migrated a system in the past? Why is that important? Different vendors handle things differently. Uh, we, we've seen some uh, the automations I talked about earlier. Those have been in play. Uh, some, some systems going from vendor A to vendor B, it uh, was a brand new project for vendor B. And uh, maybe they handle it better now, but five years ago, it was brand new to them. So we have a pretty good sense of, of where things stood at uh, any given point in time. So some of those questions can help us just, um, you know, maybe we need to pull a different report to um, validate the data as an example than uh, we might on a standard migration. So uh, we, we get into a lot of specific situations there. Just again, we wanna provide a smooth experience and ensure that the uh, the data is clean on the other side. 
So when you asked them about migrating systems and you said, did you do it yourself or was it a consultant? Why, why does that matter whether they did it themselves or they outsourced it? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, a, a consultant, typically, you're, you know, you're, you're a consultant, you get paid for this sort of thing. I don't know if don't you're doing data migrations don't, or not. Don't badmouth consultants, man. No, you I'm, I'm, I'm promoting consultants is what I'm doing. Read the room. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's not a bad thing to have someone with the data expertise working on your behalf. Advisors are doing relationship management, portfolio management. Many of them are, are managing their business, uh, managing staff. So the ins and outs of data, if you can involve an expert, huge plus. So uh, big plug for consultants working on this stuff uh, to ensure a good process. If they did it themselves, it's not necessarily a bad thing because that's, you know, um, consultants not going to know their client base as well as they do. So those duplicates, uh, the example with, with my family, advisor's going to know that off the top of their head, you're going to need to ask. So uh, pluses and minuses to it. I think, um, you know, we, we do get a good sense of those that are really tech savvy and those that aren't, and that's okay. We're here to help, but uh, people that are really tech savvy, it, um, is probably going to be a smoother migration process if they handled everything on their own. That all makes sense. Working with many other vendors as you guys do, do you have any advice for other vendors that would help reduce complexity, increase the consistency of data and lower the overall cost of managing client data? Yeah, really, really three things I would point to there. Um, one is go above and beyond where you can do it on the front end. It's going to serve you well in the long run. Uh, the, the worst thing you can have is uh, people questioning their data after it's been migrated. They no longer have access to the system or they, have, they, they don't have confidence. So they have to keep extending their incumbent provider. Not, not everybody's super flexible about that. So um, we'll go above and beyond on the front end. Uh, asking those questions, ensuring the um, the right fit, ensuring that it's going to be a smooth process to the extent we can, because in the it front really end makes... of the implementation process, not the front end of your system. Correct. The impl- well, it starts with evaluation, not just implementation. So, mm-hmm. asking good questions during the sales process is is a starting point. Uh, we we don't have to take any and all comers if they're not the right fit. So, we want to ensure it's going to be a great experience. Uh, the implementation process, the onboarding process, we're going above and beyond there to ensure that data integrity. Uh, you don't want to lose the confidence of a firm on the front end because then uh, you get a lot of questions down the road. You could see the client just decide, I'm going to extend my incumbent until I'm comfortable here. So definitely want to take the extra time to ensure that everyone is comfortable on the front end. Uh, data manipulation I talked about earlier. Uh, you want to have some guardrails there. You have to be flexible, but the, the guardrails on um, you know, security types being appropriate uh, for the transaction types, have those two tightly tied together is an example of, of being able to limit it. Everybody has manual accounts that they need to enter and manage, but uh, being able to say, okay, you know, a, a stock uh, holding has a very different set of transactions than uh, private equity limited partnership uh, accounting. So need to be able to do both and, and keep them siloed. Uh, and then automation, I mentioned it's a double-edged sword. Uh, automate where possible, but uh, have the error checking, the monitoring, 
flags that pop up to try to surface potential issues that you manually look into. Our next clip was pulled from episode 140, Automating Advisor Workflows with Anand Sheth, founder and CEO of Pulse360. Pulse360 is an application for automating the preparation, execution, and follow-up of client meetings. Everyone does client meetings, especially advisors. Uh, this software is really helpful at organizing everything around meetings, um, saves a lot of time. And Anand is talking in this clip about the efficiency gains from automating the delivery of tasks that come out of client meetings directly into advisors CRM. Another thing I like about how you've designed the product is it, it separates, uh, it creates a separation between the different uh, roles at an RIA. So the advisors tend to spend more time in Pulse 360, whereas their staff winds up spending more time in the CRM. How does that improve efficiency? So when I was in the field and we used to use the CRM to put everything in, um, it made harder for the advisors to get mentally prepared for a client meeting, let's say it's coming up, because now they're jumping into the CRM and reading perhaps some operational notes that really isn't, doesn't have an impact on what they need to be like looking for, right? So now advisors have a separate method of using Pulse to email out the clients and it's actual advice that they're delivering to the clients. So it's very, very relevant. Uh, it's not necessarily operational things. Let's say, you know, an ACAT failed and we're resubmitting the paperwork. That's not as critical as this client has a goal or, you know, wants money for vacations or what have you, right? Um, so advisors end up using Pulse because of that reason. But because of our integration, we send all the notes back into the CRM. So CRM still hold all of that data. So the operational team, they're processing tasks, calendaring, op, you know, workflows, all of that. They can have a full context still because they're, they can read all the notes that are generated in Pulse. Exactly. So it gives everyone access to everything, but it's just so much easier to generate that information in Pulse and send it to the CRM rather than vice versa. Yeah. How does the, so another thing I wanted to mention was you have a, a content library, a collections library, you call it, of all these auto-created agendas for meetings. Can you talk about that and how that is gonna benefit advisors who are using Pulse360? Yeah, so uh, I know advisors, you know, I've worked with them for two decades now. I was myself one. We always want to write things our own way, right? However, when you take a step back and look at the world of financial advice, I like to use the analysis, analysis of a soup. Um, the soup can have various different ingredients, but if we're all making the same thing, we all have the same ingredients, right? Uh, we, can, we know about Roth conversions as a recommendations, life insurance, model changes, aggressive versus conservative. Our tool set of the ingredients is, is the same across all advisors. It's how we mix it together for every client. That's where it's different. So that was kind of the idea is like, look, our advice and recommendations, if we add it into the library and bring, bring, uh, bring a content library up, that becomes an asset for the advisor. It can use the advisor's own way of saying things. And then the rest of the team can now start typing and or using the existing content 
and just personalizing and customizing where you need to. I mean, uh, let's, you know, looking at an example of a Roth conversion, I always say to advisors, how many different ways can you recommend a Roth conversion, right? Why are we typing that from scratch every time, right? That's just an enormous waste of time and mental energy that, hey, type it up once, get it just right, get the wording right, save it for posterity and reuse it across different clients and just change out what needs to change out. Which is way better than saving a Word doc because then you've got to go in, open it up, do a search and replace, make sure you did it all right. Whereas Pulse 360 builds it dynamically each time and it's always good. And you mentioned scalability, right? So this is a classic example of scalability right here. So uh, when I was in the field, I would write these follow-ups and then my advisor would come in and change it up. Um, that was actually why the original idea came across of building this is because I spent my time writing it up and then he changed it up because I didn't say things in his way. Well, now advisors can put their words in and now you get scale because you can now tell your team or junior folks to actually at least draft the first version of your follow-up email and you don't have to spend there writing that. That's another version of a scale for your practice. Absolutely. Okay, so we're running out of time. I want to get one more question in. Another great use case for Pulse360 is automating the annual client review. Can you talk about how it works and what's so great about it? Yeah, so, um, you know, I understand the value that all the advisors are delivering to the clients. Client Advisors understand that. But clients, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, tend to forget what we're doing. So what we have done is to say, look, if you're able to generate an annual summary for all the work that you've done throughout the year in less than 10 seconds, that would be hugely valuable for you as well as to your clients that you can send them an email saying, hey client, great working with you, thanks for your trust. Here's everything that we've worked together to help you know, achieve whatever the different goals may be for them. So um, it's, it's, I think, a, a fundamental and a critical component for financial advisor practice. Naturally, it takes a year's worth of work that you do within Pulse to be able to generate that for you, right? Uh, but you could do it for any time frame. You can even go back through time if you needed to. That's how we've built the whole platform. That's the key I wanted to bring out that it's gonna pull all the data you need from many previous meetings into that client uh, annual review automatically. So once you set it up that way, you automatically get the last three, four, however many meetings you want to bring in. You don't have to do it manually. No more copying and paste. No more searching. Where did I put that meeting note? How do I get to it? It just does it automatically. Correct. Yeah. Which is going to be another huge, huge time saver because advisors need to meet with every client every year. At least you got 150 clients. That's 150 hours or more saved using Pulse360. And our final clip from the top 10 most downloaded episodes of 2022 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast is, drumroll please, episode 126, the three biggest pain points of platform consolidation with Molly Weiss, head of product for wealth platforms for InvestNet. This episode was published way back in January. And here in this clip, Molly is sharing some of the challenges she has run into when consolidating multiple platforms. Yeah, we're, we're happy with the 49ers beat the Cowboys. That's a good thing. In, good thing. In New Jersey, we're all happy. Whether you have half New Jersey's Giants fans, they're happy. The other half is Eagles fans, they're happy. So good job. Yeah. Good job, 49ers. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk football all day, but we're going we're gonna to skip that. 
and we're going to move on to platform consolidation. That's the theme for January, and that's why we brought you um, uh, your leadership in the industry and your experience and your work. Uh, you know, we've always admired. So let's talk. Let's just dive right into it. So can you share with us um, some uh, of the the pain points or some of the challenges that you've run into with platform consolidations in your experience? Yeah, you know, um, I've been a part of many. Uh, InvestNet helps support both RIAs and broker-dealers through platform consolidations, and the industry has been so acquisitive that there have been a lot due to acquisition that we've been a part of in the last, you know, few years and, and definitely in the last year. Um, the, the pain points, they all, it always seems to center around, you know, what the advisor's experience is and what's most disruptive to the advisor. And what I think advisors find most disruptive is, is anything that affects their, their billing or the way that clients, you know, see the, the fee schedules or the billing that, that they might be presented with. And that, that is often a major pain point. And then also, um, you know, often sort of the back office processes get, disrupted, even though ultimately the goal from consolidation is usually to streamline service, to streamline back office processes. I think the the bumpiness of getting there sometimes is really disruptive to the advisor. So those are some of the pain points that we've seen in the past. Yeah, we've seen the same thing. We work with um, broker dealers and uh, who are doing acquisitions and need help consolidating, uh, as well as working with PE firms that are investing and then they're, they're rolling up or they're, they're bringing firms together. So yeah, acquisitions is, is the biggest uh, driver of these platform consolidations because you know the firms all want to get to growing again faster and the, plat- the, the multiple platforms are in their way. So what are some of the best practices you recommend if you were talking to a room of, of uh, broker-dealer CTOs or CIOs, what are some of the, uh, the, the best practices you'd recommend for getting the platform consolidations running as smoothly as possible? I mean, obviously planning is, is key. So, so it really all does start with planning and having a really kind of thoughtful strategy. Um, we do, I, I definitely recommend, uh, you know, understanding things like the way that the advisors are using, you know, programs on the platform and looking for ways to simplify the options that are available to them. So, you know, we see um, the UMA being leveraged a lot more heavily in the past so that it re- reduces the complexity of sort of the configuration and implementation of technology to support advisors' um, investment solutions or the investments that they're proposing to clients. So um, really looking for ways to simplify the, the, the um, choices that the advisor has to make, um, really kind of thoughtful planning around that. And then I mentioned billing before, understanding all of the ways that advisors are configured. And sometimes that's, you know, the biggest undertaking of the whole process of doing platform consolidation. It's just going through and understanding all of the flavors that have been implemented on the multiple platforms over time. And I definitely recommend things like, you know, focusing on something like billing and fee schedules to get that process really well understood. And then a good strategy for how you bring that together into something cohesive and then roll it out to your advisors. Um, those are, you know, two places where we really, you can, I think, reap the benefit of some strategic planning ahead of time. Billing is huge. You know, we, we're doing a billing project right now. Uh, and what's funny is, is that, as you, as you mentioned, they, they need to investigate all the different ways they're billing. Most firms don't know. 
because it's, yeah. it's hidden away that firms that have been in business for 20 years or more, they, they have so many different billing options, so many different tiers and levels and ways they do things, one-offs and as you mentioned, in cases, exceptions, and everything's <laughs> an exception. I mean, we've, I've been doing, we've been doing billing projects since 2009 was our first billing project. And yeah, the, the, the level of complexity uh, is tremendous. And one, as you mentioned, understanding all the ways advisors collect fees, we do a, a big competitive, we do a big, um, uh, like a current state assessment. We go and look at all, interview the accounting people and the ops people and, you know, and all the different, different groups that you know, are involved and we start finding stuff. And we're doing all these workflows. Like, did you know they do this? Did you know they do that? Did you know they take checks? Did you know, you know they do all these different things? So that's, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And I think, so your, your comment there about interviewing advisors and understanding how they run their practices, I think that that one can't be underestimated because I just feel like so often, you know, that there's an assumption about the way advisors are using technology to facilitate their client engagement or to run their practices. And, and we're not always right in the way that we're making those assumptions. And so spending time really understanding those practices. And we tend to group things based on like, you know, how much AUM an advisor might have or, or what their specific investment preferences are for clients. But I think ultimately it's really getting a better sense of how they're using platform technology to manage their business so that you handle those edge cases and you create streamlined processes for that new consolidated platform that you're trying to roll out. And that's a wrap. You made it to the end of the end of the episodes of 2022. Thank you for listening. Um, before I go, please go to EzraGroupLLC.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management goodness, news, updates, tasks, all kinds of things. You will not be disappointed. Thanks for listening. See you all again next year.